0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per the usage, I am joined by Rachel Sass.
1: How's it going, Brent?
0: I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Doing good. We're live, so that's... <laughs> yeah. that's we've been saying that for like the last month, but it's just... that's that's just how it works. If we're I, live, it's a good yeah. day. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's not the worst thing to be able to report that we're still living and breathing. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a ride here. And we're anybody in our profession is in a similar position. Um, I kind of feel bad for the I mean, I almost always feel bad for the accountants, but I feel doubly bad for the accountants because they just got done with a really rough tax season. And then they're just getting their heads above water just to be walloped by the prospects of a bunch of more tax changes.
1: Yeah, you think normally they get they take their vacation right after April 15th, October 15th, but uh not 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 this last one. It's mm-hmm. it's going to take a while. Maybe they're going to have to take a January trip, I'm going to say. That's that's the CPAs and all the attorneys are all going to take January first trips.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's my plan. As soon as it turns over to January, I'm just going to tell everybody I'm not available. I'll take care of that in February.
1: Yeah, exactly. We've done enough getting us to the end of the year.
0: Yeah. I've already been telling quite a few people, can we do this in November? And now I'm realizing I'm gonna have to tell them, can we do this next year?
1: Yeah. That's I don't think,
0: yeah, I don't think I'm gonna have the bandwidth in November.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny when I talk to people and I start talking about next year. I'm like, Oh well, next year we're gonna do this and next year we're gonna talk about this planning. And they're like, Next year, yeah, next year. It's mm-hmm. it's really not that far away, given that we got the holidays, we got year end stuff, we still gotta get through Congress passing these laws. Like, no next year. It's really not that far away. It'll get here. Don't worry.
0: I know. And it's like, uh, some of that is estate planning stuff that, you know, it's like you either do it or you die. And then that's the end of the story. And it's kind of like, what if I die? Like you won't, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry. You're fine. We'll get to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah. there's, there's been uh quite a bit going on as, as you and uh, many other people are very aware some of the things that I think have been interesting to me um, that have been highlighted by the process of negotiating this big reconciliation bill have been uh, certain sort of tax policy views. And then and those tax policy views, they sort of manifest themselves in different ways that some of the planning for wealthy individuals is done and the, the tax status of some wealthy individuals. Um, and even though. Saying the words tax policy probably makes people think this is going to be the most boring conversation possible, but it turns out it's not because tax policy is so broad and it does touch on uh, somewhat entertainment type things. So a couple of things. One has been the proposed billionaire's tax. Now, I have to, to caveat this, that at the time of recording, it's October 26th, and we do not know what the text of this billionaire's tax is going to look like i I just looked uh like a few minutes ago before we got on here and and i didn't i haven't seen the text so i I don't know that it's out if it's out it's hidden somewhere that i can't find it so i don't know what the text is i only know what uh people are reporting somewhat anonymously but this billionaire's tax which allegedly would only apply to about 700 people in all of america is getting quite a bit of run I'd say in the media, I don't know if you're feeling the same way, Rachel, but it seems to be popular.
1: I'd say so. I'd say no. so. You've got your your famous billionaires who are speaking out about it and, of course, do not really appreciate uh, this this new proposal. And then you've got a lot of other people who are like, oh, yeah, absolutely. It totally makes sense. It's only going to affect 700 people. They got plenty of money. It's totally right. fine.
0: Yeah, and the projections alleged project i you know i don't know where people come up with these numbers but the projections are that the tax would raise somewhere around tens to hundreds of billions of dollars in tax revenue uh, which is a very broad range so yeah. i'm not sure what to take from those sorts of prognostications uh the other thing that uh, ha- has also sort of popped up of interest in the media have been several articles one very recent one in business week about kind of wealth planning techniques of the rich and famous um, highlighting some of the techniques oftentimes in a way that i find a little bit grating not necessarily because i think all of these techniques are sacrosanct but just the way it is approached i think is the wrong way to approach it personally but i'm not a journalist either so I, maybe i'm wrong about how you do that job but uh or the, the ultimate goal of that job so i thought uh, maybe we could talk about some of these things if that's of any interest to you
1: that sounds like a plan. This is pretty much this. I mean, this is our world. This is our world every single yeah. day. So it makes sense. <laughs>
0: it's sad. It is sad. As as I as I tell people, I wish I knew more baseball stats.
1: <laughs> right.
0: I'd be a much more interesting person.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so. Uh, all right. So the billionaire's tax. Let me try to explain this in as good a way as I understand it, with the, again, huge caveat that we haven't seen the bill. So I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But apparently for um, people who either have a net worth of a billion dollars or make a certain amount of money each year on a sort of rolling average basis with a three-year look back, uh, and the amount of money is something like hundreds of hundred million it's not a small amount of money but a large amount of money on this three-year look back basis if you sort of step into that trap then a couple of things happen to you number one on what appear to be say marketable securities or things that have a ready market value you are deemed to have sold those assets every year as so-called mark-to-market regime, where if they've gone up in value, you're deemed to have sold them, you have to pay a capital gain tax. I don't know what the tax rate would be, but let's just assume it's the normal capital gain tax rate. And the maximum federal rate right now today is is 23.8%. So let's just assume you'd pay 23.8% on the capital gains. Then if they had declined in value, I've seen some reports that you would actually get to take a loss. And uh, it's not Perfectly clear to me whether you get to offset the gains and the losses against each other. Under some tax regimes that they have recently come out with, in particular the pass through income deduction, there is a sort of you can offset gains and losses. Uh, and in some instances, you're required to offset gains and losses from multiple business sources. So maybe they would allow you or require you to offset gains and losses in this mark-to-market regime. Okay. So that's sort of the first thing. You get you. You're deemed to have sold assets in this mark-to-market regime. Then it appears that as it relates to other types of assets, more hard-to-value assets such as real estate, that if you later sell the real estate, you pay tax on the gain as normal, but you get charged an interest charge on the gains. And the interest charge, it's not clear when the interest begins to run Um So just for for way of example, for example, it might be uh, that the interest begins to run on the effective date of this bill or say on January 1, 2022. So any gains that have arisen after uh, January 1, 2022, if you sell, you're deemed to have sort of like underpaid your tax and then they charge you interest on the deemed underpayment of the tax beginning on January 1, 2022. And then I'm assuming there's some component in there or going to be some component in there about how long you've held it. You know what the interest would begin to run once your holding period or when you acquired the asset when that begins. Um, Then uh, it it appears that there's going to be some sort of like hedging in, so you can't avoid these rules by say owning your assets through. passive sources like partnership interests or LLC interests, their taxes, partnerships, or S-Corps, or holding your assets through an estate or a trust, or maybe just gifting away the asset to somebody else that you won't be able to avoid this issue. So that, that as far as I understand it, again, I'm just trying to like cobble together what I'm reading about this thing. That's the way this quote unquote billionaire tax would work.
1: Yeah, so it, it definitely changes the, the current law. So you think what currently, if you hold... Uh, Let's just use stocks, right? That's that's an easy example. So if you hold stocks today, you hold them for the next 10 years. Once you sell it, that's when you realize any gains on there. And that's when you would pay any capital gains tax. But this is saying, nope, it's going to be an annual tax. You are going to pay the tax on any unrealized gains before you sell it. So that's why big revenue numbers, like you were saying earlier, because now if you had bought Apple stock, or let's just say you bought Zoom stock before the pandemic happened. And obviously Zoom stock has greatly increased since then. You got to pay those uh, gains annually. You're not going to be able to just kind of write it out for 20, 30 years from now. So that's really big. And like you're saying with the real estate, if they're going to be accruing interest from the holding date, that could be really big. Um, but as you and I talked about, it's not that unusual, right? So um, this, this, scheme here um, already applies to Pfix so passive foreign investment companies these are pretty much the exact same rules that apply when you uh, invest in a foreign company you're going to be taxed on any unrealized gains so it's not like this brand new thing that that Congress has come up with we've seen it before it's just that no one feels bad for anyone who owns Pfix and so we haven't heard the outrage that we are hearing from no. some of our billionaires.
0: No, not at all, and it, it's been really interesting uh, from that perspective because we we deal with quite a bit of cross border uh, scenarios. So PFICs are very common for us to be dealing with, um, and a PFIC for anybody who's not aware is essentially, although this is not the exact definition, but is essentially a foreign mutual fund. If you think of it that way, that's basically what it is. It's a it's a foreign company in which you don't collectively with a bunch of other Americans own sort of the controlling interest. And uh, it has passive income or passive assets. That's basically a foreign mutual fund. So PFIX are essentially foreign mutual funds. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're not familiar with fix then you might think that this billionaire tax regime as it's been described in the media which again the bill may be different but as it's been described in the media is of this brand new concept and somewhat outrageous really because it's just so different and maybe you would think well this is a bad idea because yes they're going to start with 700 but they're going to expand this out and capture a bunch more of us how horrible is this that they're going to capture a bunch more of us And so I've been seeing some of these comments uh, in the media and on social media, et cetera, and sort of laughing to myself because clearly the people expressing this outrage do not know what PFIX are and have no experience with PFIX at all. And zero of them I have seen or heard saying after complaining about this billionaire tax, and we got to change this PFIC regime because regular old people have to pay the tax for the freaking PFICs, not just billionaires. You know, you and I would have to deal with uh, the PFIC issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, we got we to gotta fix this only for billionaires, but we can keep this same rules, the same for ordinary folk. Who just invested in, um, in a foreign company here? But yeah, so it's it's, it's definitely not anything new. Um, we we've seen it before. It's just you you see the talking heads are going to be a, quite a bit different depending on uh, which which what you're going to be involved in.
0: Yeah, not not new in concept. I guess that'd be the caveat that it's. Uh... It's been a common way to dissuade people from investing in foreign funds. And now I guess this is going to be the new common way to dissuade people from accumulating billions of dollars. Um, Will it prevent people from accumulating billions of dollars? I keep hearing people say, well, they'll just leave the country. Like, First of all, I doubt that that's true. And second of all, and the reason I'm saying that is because you can't just leave the country and avoid U.S. tax. You'd have to give up your citizenship. And if you gave up your citizenship and you have that level of wealth, you would be what's called a covered expatriate, which means you would have to pay an exit tax. You'd be deemed to have sold all of your assets when you leave. And it's uh, not that easy to get around the exit tax when you have that kind of money, plus Once you become a covered expatriate and you've left, if you ever gift or bequeath or leave assets to beneficiaries, you know, family members who are U.S. citizens or residents, they have to pay an inheritance tax on those funds. So you enter into this horrific regime that's even worse than this proposed billionaire's tax. I'm not as convinced that people are going to flee the country. Uh, You know, it might be worth it if all these billionaires know that they're going to be billionaires and therefore they can leave the country timely enough. To avoid paying tax when they later become billionaires, but that's probably hard to predict, I, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. I'm I'm curious to see um, whether after we have it and it really doesn't affect very many people, we have as much outrage mm-hmm. or cheering. Okay. I guess they're still cheering too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you. I agree with you there. I think once if if it's passed, we see the final language. It's all a matter of reading into the language, interpreting it, and finding different other tax opportunities to kind of plan around it Mm -hmm. and kind of go from there. Mm
0: -hmm. And and it's interesting because even the, the ideas of trying to prevent people from avoiding the tax through passive entities and making gifts, et cetera, it's very, very similar. In concept, again, I don't know the details of the bill, but very in concept, that'd be very similar to the PFIC regime where if you transfer your interest in the PFIC, that can trigger some of these, these taxes and interest charges with PFICs. And even dying doesn't get you out of the issue uh, with a PFIC. So I'm very curious to see if that's what they're doing with the billionaires. Okay. So beyond uh, the billionaire tax, so we don't know exactly what that is. There are some things where we apparently do know uh, what's going on. There've been a handful of these types of articles about the the super rich wealth and wealthy and famous and how they squirrel away money and give millions and billions of dollars to families without quote unquote paying tax. And the recent one in in Business Week was primarily about Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike uh, and himself a many, many, many times over billionaire. And they highlight a few techniques that apparently Phil Knight has used as as disclosed in some of the SEC filings for Nike, I have not gone back to look at all the SEC filings. So I don't know if the article is accurate. So we're just assuming it's accurate. But a couple of the techniques uh, of interest one is what's called the Grantor Retained Annuity Trust or GRAP, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, second is uh, a, a sale or a gift transaction to an intentionally defective grantor trust or an IGIT. Uh, they talk about taking valuation discounts on entity interests, like an LLC interest, which apparently Phil Knight has some LLC. And then also they talk about charitable lead annuity trusts and using annuity trusts, charitable lead annuity trusts, or CLATs, to shift money to family members without paying any tax. So I thought maybe we could run through these at a high level. So we're not going to get into the weeds on all these because that'd be like its own hour long discussion for any of these things. They're somewhat complicated in and of themselves
1: uh yeah this uh this article this article it it made me chuckle it made me
0: chuckle Uh, (laughs) in what way
1: i don't know if that means i'm like i've I've, well we were almost like tainted in a way being in this industry but it it just makes me chuckle because it's to 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 hear the the different techniques and um this article as, as you alluded to earlier is written from definitely someone's point of view and I respect that opinion and their point of view um, but I would say that this individual who wrote it probably has not seen all of these techniques and is really um, well versed in in all the tax planning techniques because when you read through it you're saying the grats the igits, valuation discounts clats these are common techniques honestly when I saw it. What Phil Knight did, I'm like, oh yeah, they did some great planning. Pat on the back to his attorney. He, yeah, they did looks a great familiar, job. Exactly. Right? They're I know. They're they're tricks, they're not tricks, but they're techniques that we use on a day-to-day basis for our clients, depending on what their goals are. It's no secret at all. A lot of estate planning attorneys across the country use these techniques. Mm-hmm. Super common. And the biggest thing is that some of them are like, you know, the, the IRS it's not like they don't know about it. They know about it. They've blessed some of these. They've, uh, we'll, we'll go through it, but so starting with, how about we start with grats on the top of the list. So the grats, um, for just a very high level, again, overview of what a grat is a grantor retained annuity trust. So a individual settler family couple put, uh, assets into an irrevocable trust. Typically, you're going to put highly appreciable assets into that trust. And then the grantors take back an annuity stream from that trust. And the biggest thing with a grant is that you freeze the value of the assets on the day that you transfer it in. So if you put in your Zoom stock before the pandemic, the the pandemic hit, it's going to be stuck at whatever it was then. Then you had the pandemic happen. It shot up in value. You've already transferred that, that, uh, that amount on the transfer date. So any excess in value, it's not going to be in your state. You don't have to worry about it. It's going to pass to whoever those beneficiaries of that trust are without ever having to worry. So it's a great technique. Again, a lot of people use it, especially when you've, you Got people who are investing in companies early, right when they're starting, and they truly believe that they are going to appreciate in value. So, with GRATS, um, again, no secret at all, very common technique. There's a lot of um, big fans of GRATS out there, and they're in the regulations. They are actually in the regulations. So it's not like this is, again, a secret. Congress knows about them. They wrote the rules about how to make a GRAT work. There are specific rules that you actually need to meet in all of your trust agreements when you're forming a GRAT in order to take advantage of those rules. And if you do it properly, you're good to go by the rules. And so um, the fact that uh, uh, Phil Knight used GRATs, thats that's not surprising at all. Um, I think the article talked about how he used quite a few of them that is not common or that that is very common either there's there's no shock there we have clients who have rolling grats, they set them up different times so you can get different assets in at different valuations, again, very common technique nothing new here that we're seeing.
0: No, nothing new at all. And and the reality is that if the tax changes that have been proposed are enacted, that the use of grats is probably going to go out of favor. Um, so the article is also not all that timely <laughs> because they're basically going to get rid of grats anyways. But it's it's such a common it's such a common technique that uh, as you mentioned the irs literally wrote the rules on how to do them in the regs in black and white they wrote this is how you do grats and grats were in fact a response to other techniques that congress and the irs thought were even more aggressive (laughs) aggressive and abusive so the grat is historic in historic terms the conservative technique and that sometimes gets lost on people when they're talking about these uh, these sorts of techniques. I mean, to your point about like the the tenor of some of these articles and obviously it's obvious that the people writing the article don't have any familiarity with these techniques. It sort of reminds me of um, somebody who's complaining about the building being on fire rather than questioning why is the building on fire? And that's sort of what these articles are like. It's like all the focus is on the fact that the building is on fire and not why the building is on fire. And they forget to sort of ask the question of why. And the why is because the IRS literally says you can do it. Now you can question whether that's good policy or not. I think that's a very fair question. And there's ample room for debate on whether that's good policy, but that is what is permitted. It's not a, it's really not that aggressive.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, OK, so one of the other techniques the article discussed was IGITs, Intentionally Defective Grantor Trusts, which, again, to your point, if Congress passes all of their tax laws like they have proposed, the IGITs aren't going to be very useful pretty soon once we have to get, get past the enactment date. So but talking about an IGIT, what it is, again, we've got a grantor. They're setting up an irrevocable trust for some beneficiary. Let's just say we're going to make it some family members. And they transfer the assets into the irrevocable trust, so they get those assets out of their estate. Um, the assets, again, are then going to be frozen at that transfer date value. And then what's special about an IGIT is that during the grantor's lifetime, the grantor, it is considered, it, will, it is considered a grantor trust. And so that means that the grantor pays the income tax for the beneficiaries on the trust assets. Some people may think, well, why would you want to do that? That basically allows you to transfer more assets, more wealth to your beneficiaries, and try and reduce your estate as much as possible. So let's say you put in—I'm just going, keep going on Zoom today, I guess. So you put in those shares of Zoom, um, and then you're going to be paying the income tax for that then for your beneficiaries. So the Zoom stock's just going to keep on appreciating. All of that goes to your beneficiaries. They get a lot more bang out of it, basically. So those are, again, really useful planning techniques. Right now, we're seeing a lot of clients uh, forming IDGITs before the enactment date because if Congress proposes or if Congress passes their proposed changes, they would make it so that any assets uh, to an IDGIT would basically, um, you, you don't get the, the the income tax treatment that you want to right now. So it's not going to be as useful. So we got a lot of people who are setting them up, trying to get them grandfathered in beforehand. Again, this is no secret. This is a great uh, tax planning technique that a lot of people use.
0: Yep. Uh, same. Yeah. It's like the same thing with the grads. It's like, well, the article is not very timely because if they if <laughs> they do what the House proposed they do in Congress, they're going to clamp down on these things and you're not really going to be able to use these trusts in the future anyway. So. Yeah, but it's it's nice that they pointed it out. The so the other thing that's related to the idgets uh, that you pointed out here is the valuation discounts. And so the idea with the valuation discounts is say you add assets to an LLC and then you transfer interests in the LLC into the idget or you sell interest in the LLC into the idget. Well, for gift tax purposes, Or in the eyes of the irs the value of the llc interests are not their pro rata value of the assets inside the company instead you discount the value under the theory that number one oftentimes the recipient of those interests has no control over the company so they can't force the company to give them money and number two a a in an arm's length transaction, a third party would never pay you a premium or full value for that asset that they can't force the company to give money out of. So you discount the value down. Some of the discounts can be pretty big. They can be 30, 40. I've seen even as high as 50% of the value of the LLC interest. So if you're, say, gifting something that looks like in the eyes of the IRS, it's only worth 60% of its actual value, you're transferring that extra 40% without incurring uh say gift tax if it's a gift or without receiving back payments if it was a sale on that 40 percent but you still transferred the value of the 40 percent in the, this discount amount into the trust and so you can sort of do these transactions uh you know in a relatively efficient way to limit the tax hit on the transaction and to get more money effectively into the hands of the trust and family members so it's a pretty it's a pretty common technique it's another one of these techniques that, again, if if Congress does what the House has proposed that they do, is going to go out of favor because unless the LLC owns actively managed trade and business assets, you will not be able to take valuation discounts anyways. And so let's just, and I don't know if this is exactly what Phil Knight did, so this could definitely be wrong. But just as an example, let's assume Phil Knight contributed a bunch of uh, Nike stock into one of these LLCs, and then he transferred interest in the LLC by gift or a sale to an IGIT. Well, Nike stock is publicly traded. That's not an active. Tr- it's not an active trader business to own stock in Nike. And so, under the rules that are proposed, he would not get any valuation discount for making a gift of those LLC interests. I can tell you there would still be reason to want to transfer LLC interest, even if you didn't get the discounts. But um, that is the that is sort of the parameter or the the change that the House Ways and Means Committee proposed. And so, again, this article, it's nice that they point out this issue, but it's sort of going away anyways, uh, if Congress does what they said they're going to do.
1: Yep. And and to your point, the, that's exactly what what Phil Knight did. Yeah, he had shares of Nike in an LLC and then um, one of his family trusts got a piece of that. They took a 15% discount on it. Bada bing, bada boom. That's how it works.
0: Yeah. And presumably the Nike stock appreciated in value, uh, which is really is really the crux of the issue. And uh, although the article was a bit exercised about that, it's not different from, say, if your parents gave you their house on the day they give you their house, it's only worth what it is on that day. But if it, if it triples in value because the real estate market goes crazy and now you own a house that's worth three times the value, the thing that your parents gave you was the thing they, the value that they gave you on the day of the gift, not the future value that you now have. And so you shouldn't have to charge your parents for the future value of the asset that they no longer own. And then, and the article sort of misses that point And it kind of gets exercised about the fact that the assets appreciated. And value in the hands of um, Phil Knight's progenitors rather than in, in his hands, even though he had given them away early. And then they appreciated after he gave away the asset.
1: That's, that's a really good point you bring up. I think that really kind of um, puts it into a perspective where everyone can kind of realize the the thought process behind this. And it's really, you know, the, the individuals who are taking advantage of these rules, they are planning in advance. That is the key right there, right? These expected this company to uh, increase in value. So you do these planning techniques before you think they're going to substantially increase and then you can really take advantage of it and really freeze the value of those assets the day that you do these transfers. That's really the crux of it is how we're gonna freeze the value. So I think then going on to the last point that uh, the article hits on, and this one really struck me i was upset about this one and that's the article talking about charitable lead annuity trust and i felt like in in my opinion the article was almost attacking a charitable lead annuity trust which i'm like it's a charitable trust we have money going to charities how is that bad how is that bad at all and um that that one just uh that, that one irks me. Um, but so when we're talking about charitable lead annuity trust, uh, what we're doing here, again, we were creating an irrevocable trust. The uh, grantor is going to be uh, putting assets into this trust and then the um, the charity takes an annuity. And so they're going to be getting a stream of income and then the grantor is going to be getting what's left of the, the trust. And so you've got money that or or and it could go to different beneficiaries too. So you've got money that can stay with the family, okay? That's one part. But then you've got a big chunk of money that is going to charity at the end of the day. And what's, you know, important to to note about a uh, charitable lead annuity trust is, you know, it it is going to be going to a 501c3, it can be going to a private foundation, it could be going to a donor advised fund. But at the end of the day, there is a legitimate charitable organization that is receiving funds. And so in my mind, I am all for that. I think it is great. And uh, Charitable Lead Annuity Trust, they really um, are are beneficial in a low interest environment. So how we've seen it in the last uh, year or so here. So a lot of people have been taking advantage of these CLATs. Um, and the the one thing that that really kind of irks me with the charitable lead annuity trust that you and I had talked about, Brent, was that, again, this is this is no, nothing new here. No secret. And the IRS literally wrote the forms on how to create a proper charitable lead trust. Like if you go to the IRS website and you go, type it in that you want the charitable Lead trust, they literally tell you word by word what needs to be included in the trust agreement. So this is clearly blessed by the IRS. It is they they are blessing this because it's public good public policy to give money to charity. And um, the fact that uh, this this article is kind of outraged that money was still coming back to family members. That, you know, I, I think if, if you can give money to some family and you can give some money to charity, that's great. That is wonderful. Good for you. You, you accomplished two goals there. All right. And if if a client comes to us with philanthropic intent and they they really want to help a um, few specific charities or a lot of charities, more than happy to help them with it. And I I don't understand why this is something we should be outraged about.
0: Yeah, I have a hard time with the charitable lead trust one, too. To your point, the IRS wrote form trust documents for charitable lead annuity trusts and charitable lead unit trusts, which nobody uses. But the charitable lead annuity trust is as blessed as they come. Um, There's an interesting subtext to the article, I think, as it relates to these, these charitable trusts, and that is that the charitable lead Trusts and then the flip side the charitable remainder trusts are are actually um, the IRS's answer to a very nuanced question that or, or the Congress's answer to a very nuanced question, which is, is it proper to grant somebody a charitable contribution deduction if they only give a partial interest of their property? to the charity? And the general answer is no. General rule is no. You cannot get a charitable deduction for giving a partial interest in your property to charity. And then Congress and and the IRS, by extension, um, through regulations, have blessed a handful of ways to actually give partial interest in properties. And, and using a charitable lead trust or a charitable remainder trust are two of those ways. And I, I think some of the uh, reasoning for that is, as a general proposition charitable trusts have an enforcement mechanism in that in most states a, char- a charitable trust can be enforced uh, against the trustee and any other parties by the attorney general of the state or by some authority of the state government so there's a there's sort of a government oversight element to it and they're so popular and and so uh preferred by the irs that they they have written these form trust documents for not only charitable lead trusts but also all sorts of charitable remainder trusts like the the irs policy is they want people to do these things properly because it actually encourages people to give money to charity and they have uh very uh detailed uh regulations and detailed uh publications on how to do those techniques so it's like it's not it's not something that somebody invented off the top of their head, and they were acting very aggressively when apparently the Knight family did this. It was all—I hate to say—plain vanilla, because all the stuff is so complicated to begin with. Um, but it's very common.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, not yeah, plain vanilla. I like that. <laughs> I like that because it—it really is. It's—it's it's, like you said. It's—it's it's common stuff. We we see this yeah. all the time. We do this on a day-to-day basis for a lot of our higher net worth clients. Um, and when especially when we have a client that comes to us and they start talking about having charitable intent, we are absolutely going to be discussing some of these techniques and some of these trusts with them because we want to be able to further their goals and help benefit whatever charities that they want to. And then of course, also helping them on the tax planning side. So this is, yeah, nothing to be outraged about. And that's why it's, when when i read this article it just kind of just kind of struck me and maybe 5 years ago when i wasn't an attorney i would have thought completely different but now that we are immersed in this on a day-to-day basis and we see like these are just the rules and this is what congress is giving us and this is what we're working with and we're playing within those rules um it's it's nothing to be shocked about it's it's really just um if if these rules can apply to you because you have acquired a significant amount of wealth, then you use them. And that's that's kind of how it works.
0: Yeah, I don't think you can necessarily blame people for using the, the rules that are available to them. But like I was trying to describe, I completely think that there is a very relevant debate to be had about whether these should be the rules at all. Mhm. I don't think there's much debate to be had about whether people should have used the rules that existed. yes. It's mm-hmm. a pointless debate, you know, because who doesn't use those rules? Anybody who's ever gotten a tax credit on their tax return has used favorable tax rules to their, to their benefit. So mm-hmm. that's probably everybody. And so nobody has clean hands to go second guessing whether somebody was using, uh, rules that are in the tax code to their advantage in the past, whether those should be the rules going forward is a very worthwhile debate to be had. And I, I think should always be an open debate. Everything in the tax code and all the policies that we that we have in the tax code should always be open to vigorous debate and analysis. That's Absolutely. the way it should always work.
1: Absolutely, 100% agree with you.
0: Good, <laughs> because then we'd have to have the debate right now. <laughs> I'm tired. I don't know if I I don't know if I'm up for it.
1: Yeah, we don't have it in us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's Maybe another time. Rules. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's somebody actually smart to come on to the podcast and and then they can have the debate with themselves. That would be good.
1: There you go. There you go.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I think that that pretty much covers it. I mean, those are the those are kind of the big ticket things, at least that I'm seeing in the media and social media spaces that seem to be catching the attention of uh, commentators uh, for good or ill. And uh, it's all very interesting to me. We'll, We'll all be very smart about what the new tax changes are going to be in due course here. Uh, And at that point, we may have to come back and correct the record about everything that we've said about any of these things when the rules have changed for many of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Once we got that final language, we'll see what happens then. So Mm -hmm. to be continued.
0: To be continued. Yes.
1: Whenever Congress finally passes this. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. All right, Rachel. Well, as ever, it was a pleasure. Thanks for doing it.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information, and I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media, at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.